At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first grade. If you don't have your Bibles open, let's keep them open to Mark chapter 6. How many of you are here and you're old enough to have gone back, even if you didn't, but you're old enough to have gone back to a high school reunion? Go ahead. I can. Let me see that hand. Yep. Now, if you've gone back to a high school reunion, you've probably heard the same kinds of comments that come out at every reunion. She hasn't changed since the day I saw her the last day in high school. Or, how is it possible that this guy now has the responsibility to run his own business and have a family? I mean, that's impossible from the guy that I knew back in high school. But when I was in high school... Well, let's say I was um, aesthetically challenged. I was uh, cosmetically challenged, maybe. So at my 10-year reunion, I go back, and I had changed quite a bit, my 10-year reunion just being last summer. And um, <laughs> I had changed quite a bit from my 10-year uh, at my 10-year reunion, and so much so, I was sitting out in a lobby in a hallway, this hotel, and this person came up to me and said, I just don't believe it's you. I've got to see your driver's license. So I pulled out my driver's license and proved that I was who I was. But it is amazing. You go back to your hometown, for, in this case for me, Winston-Salem, and, and people you just haven't seen in a while see you again. And they look at you differently. They're wondering about you. And this is what happens to Christ when he returns to his hometown in Nazareth. He's been away for some time and he's going back. And all these people he grew up with, all of his friends for 30 years are now seeing Christ and they have a very strong reaction to him. They see him, but they don't recognize him. They see Christ, they see Jesus, but they can't believe he is who he says he is. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that in Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35, we began a field trip. Christ had been teaching his disciples and he said, okay, disciples, let's take this teaching and go on a field trip. And they began their trip across the lake or the Sea of Galilee And you'll notice here the same thing is happening. Verse 1, he went away from there. He'd been at Capernaum. He comes to his hometown and his disciples are following him. That's the whole purpose of what's happening here. Christ is trying to, he's calling his 12 disciples and he's not just randomly walking around Israel. He's purposefully putting his disciples in the Hebrew. We've talked about this, the Telmedim. If you want to be a Telmedim, if you want to be a disciple, you're going to have to follow Christ. And he's purposefully putting them in places that they might understand what it means to follow Christ, to be with him, to have faith in Christ, and then to spread God's word wherever they go. Now, he's we're coming to this particular passage knowing now that we're at the end of the field trip. If you look at chapter 6, verse 7, he calls the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. So here we are. We're at the last place, the last stop on the field trip. And in chapter 6, verse 7, he's going to send them out. 
we're 21st century disciples. We're preparing to move out into our world. And so let's read through this passage and make some observations about Jesus. And then we'll make some observations about the hometown reaction. The first thing you notice here is that Jesus comes to the Jewish synagogue on a Saturday and whatever he was saying was astonishing or amazing or marveling to the crowd. So whatever he was teaching, the crowd was listening at it and they were marveling. They were amazed at what Christ was teaching. Flip forward with me to Luke chapter four, Luke four, verse 16. Now, we're not sure if this is a parallel passage or another time he was at his hometown, Nazareth. But I think this gives us a, an insight as to what was happening in Mark chapter 6. Let's look at Luke 4:16. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So it's a Saturday. Jesus is coming in. He's known as some kind of teacher or rabbi. And so somebody's invited him up front and say, could you be the teacher today? And he stood up to read. And the scroll, the Old Testament, he unrolls to the prophet Isaiah. And it was given to him. He unrolled it and he found the place where this was written. Now we're at verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, which is the teaching position at that point, not standing. He sits down and all of the eyes of the synagogue, everybody's fixed on Jesus. And then he said this today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus goes back and he picks up Isaiah 61, something that had been written 700 years ago. He reads the passage, his Old friends, his old high school friends are looking at him. Maybe a, a rabbi that he had sat underneath is looking at him. He was a carpenter, so maybe he had built something and you had it in your house. He built it for you. You're looking at him. And he tells all of those people. I'm the anointed one. The one Isaiah is looking for. Forward to come, I'm that person. I'm the one God has sent to proclaim liberty. I'm the one who's going to give sight to the blind. And you can just imagine how stunned everybody must have been. First, the crowd, the, the high school friends, the, the old rabbi, you're the one. And even those who are following, even the disciples have to look closely and say, now, I know I've said this, but gosh, just hearing him say it again, is he really, is he really the one? As I said, there's some question going back now to Mark chapter six, whether this is the same event or whether that happened in Mark six or another event. But here's where there's no question. 
Jesus would have stood up in the synagogue, he would have opened up an Old Testament passage, and he would have talked. And no matter what he would have said in the Old Testament, no matter what passage he would have picked up in the Old Testament, you know who he would have been talking about? Himself. You see, he might have picked up Isaiah 61 and it might have been talking about him. But maybe this day, in Mark chapter 6, he picks up Genesis 3. And he talks about the seed of the woman. And then he says, I'm that seed. I'm the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he goes to Exodus and he talks about the Passover lamb. And then he rolls up the scroll and he says, I'm the Passover lamb. I'm the one who's going to be slain. Maybe he goes to Ruth and they talk about the kinsman redeemer. And he rolls up the scroll and he says, I'm the kinsman redeemer. I'm your next nearest relative that can buy you out of the condition that you're currently in. And everybody looks at him with amazement. Maybe he goes to the Song of Solomon. Everybody, all the males are doing this. And he says, I'm your lover. It's not somebody else. I'm that person. I'm continually pursuing you like a lover would pursue the one he loves. Maybe he opens up to Daniel and he talks about the rock that strikes the statue and all of the kingdoms fall and this rock grows and it fills the whole earth. And he says, you know who that rock is? People in the synagogue? It's me. I'm that rock. Or he turns to Isaiah chapter 9 and he reads this. For to us a child is born. A son is given. And the government is going to be on his shoulders. And this person, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he rolls up the scroll and he looks at all of his high school friends and he says, you can now start calling me Everlasting Father. You can appreciate the reaction that he might have gotten from the crowd. You're that person? I couldn't have possibly guessed it. It's like going back to the high school reunion and having to show your driver's license. I need some identity. You see, it doesn't matter where Jesus goes to in the Old Testament. Everything, everything is pointing to Christ. And that's one of the lessons he's trying to help his disciples understand. Disciples, don't get distracted. Remember, don't be like the guy that's shooting the free throws and all the hands are waving behind the backboard. That's not the real thing. The real thing is me. Keep your eyes on me. And the people are stunned and they're amazed and they must be sitting there scratching their heads saying, who is this person? Where did he get his information from? I don't know if you've read anything by Max Lucado or Lucado. I'm not sure how to say his last name. He has some interesting insights on how people might have thought back at that time. And I've always appreciated this little chapter in one of his books called 25 Questions for Mary. And he kind of sits in Mary's 
shoes or sits in her seat and kind of imagines what Mary must have thought at some point when she was with Jesus. And here's just a couple of them. Did you ever catch him pensively looking at his flesh on his own arm while holding a clot of dirt? Imagine if you're Mary and Jesus is holding this clot of dirt and then he's doing this. Did that ever happen to you? You see, she got to see and yet did she see? I wonder if you ever tried to count the stars with him and succeed. Well, son, let's count the stars. Okay. well, we got to the end. That's all of them. This is the names of all of them. I mean, imagine being in this synagogue and this person standing up, the person that you've grown up with, very little information about his life. And suddenly he says he's this person. We can at least appreciate the astonishment that the people might have had. And so we're here. If you're here asking questions about Jesus, you're asking at least this question. Is he one of us or is he somebody else? That's what you've got to come down to. When you look at Jesus, who actually lived, very few people even dispute that. You have to ask yourself the same question the people in Nazareth are asking. They're asking this question. Is he one of us? Or is he something or someone different? And if you're a disciple, you're asking yourself the same question. You're reminding yourself, he's the son of God. He is the everlasting father. And I want to ask you this question if you're a believer. Christ stands up and he's going to talk about himself. And how does he do it? He looks back at the scriptures. That's how he does it. So believers, when you're encountering people outside of these walls, are you encountering them with the scriptures? That's what points people to Christ. That's what opens up people's eyes. Remember on the road to Emmaus, these men are walking down the road to Emmaus and Jesus sort of in disguise comes along and walks beside them. And they have this discussion and they don't see. They see Jesus, but they don't see him. And what does he do to help them see who he is? Here he is, the risen Savior. He could have done anything miraculous. He could have provided any incredible experience. He could have put on this light show that would have surpassed anything that they've ever seen. Instead, what does he do? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he begins to tell them about himself. And when they are sitting at the table and he breaks the bread, they see him. And you know what they say? It was spectacular how he broke that bread open. No, were not our hearts burning within us as he told us the scriptures? What's powerful in the life of a person, what's transforming in the life of the person, what helps somebody see who doesn't see are the scriptures. And so that's where we want to be pointing to people to. Now, let's notice the 
reaction of the hometown. Jesus stands up. He makes this particular claim. And then we'll notice this reaction here. Verse two. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And then those who were hearing them were astonished. And they say, where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How does he do these mighty works? Isn't this just the carpenter, the son of Mary and his brothers and sisters are here? The first thing they recognize about Jesus is that he has some kind of unique power and wisdom. And it's apparently been given to him. They realize that there's no way any normal person could come up with this. Something's been given to him that's different than the way we've seen it from other rabbis. And so they're standing right here in front of the door that leads to the to another world. And they look at him and they take offense. The word in the Greek is scandalized. Isn't it amazing? We're just coming off this story with Jairus and the bleeding woman. And they come rushing up to Christ and they're known because of their faith. And here these people are hearing the word of God. They're seeing Christ and yet they're scandalized by Christ. One of the things to note here is that physical proximity and visually watching a miracle apparently don't equal faith. See, a lot of people in here or, you know, some people would say, if I could just be next to Jesus, if I could have just lived right next to Jesus. Or if I could have just seen some miracle, well, then that's what I'm looking for. Just one of those things. And apparently you can hear him and you can see a miracle and you could still not have faith because that's what happens to these people. They're standing in front of the door that leads to another world. And yet they take offense. Now, why do they take offense? That was sort of the question I was rolling around with in my mind as I read this. They're they're listening they're paying attention, apparently. They are amazed. They see it's, some, it's from some other place. And yet they take offense at Christ. How is it that people could take offense at Christ? I'm going to list three. One, pride. Look at verse three. You can kind of hear it in their questions. Is this not the carpenter? This can't be Christ, because as far as I know, he's just a carpenter. Isn't this the son of Mary? Some people think of that as a derogatory piece. He's he's not the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. In other words, he's the one who you know about his past. His brothers, his sisters are all here. And so they're prideful. And really. They just don't want somebody to be better than them. Is that true for any of you all? When, when you get around somebody who's better, your pride kind of wells up. And you may know it by this. When somebody you think is richer or smarter or anything that's better than you... When they have disaster, you don't say it, but you take some sort of pleasure in that. See, they're like one. They're like us. 
you rejoice in the downfall of somebody else. That's that's pride. I just don't want somebody to be better than me. And that's what's happening here, at least on one level. Some of the people are in there and say, no, he's one of us. We can't have somebody be better than us. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or more clever or better looking than others. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on people. And of course... As long as you're looking down, I love the way Lewis says this, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. You see, pride eliminates the need for Christ because he's going to be superior than you. And whenever you encounter that, then if your pride enters in, then you're not going to be able to see God. I think this is what happens uh, when Thomas Jefferson rewrites the New Testament. Most of you are probably aware of this. There was the Jeffersonian Bible, I think they called it. And he rewrote the New Testament and he kept all the good teachings in it, but he took out all the miraculous parts of the New Testament. And a PBS commentator says this, listen to this. In short, Mr. Jefferson's Jesus modeled on the ideals of the Enlightenment thinkers of his day bore a striking resemblance to... Mr. Jefferson. Do you see what happens? It's okay if Jesus Christ is a great teacher. He just can't be different than us. He can't be something else. If he just got it from hard study, that's fine. He, he lives some kind of good life, that's fine. Maybe I can do that. But he can't be altogether different. So that's the question we're left with here. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he one of us or is he somebody else? Jesus, in Mark 6, in the synagogue, he stands up and he clearly separates himself from everybody else. And so they take offense because of their pride. The second thing, possibly, is that they take offense because of familiarity. When the prophet comes back to his hometown, nobody thinks he's a prophet. But we know this guy. And I'm particularly concerned about this if you're somebody who's grown up in the church. I'm not saying that it's bad to grow up in the church. I'm, I want you to hear me say, grow up in a church. All right, I don't want any cards or letters saying it would be better if I didn't grow up in a church. Grow up in a church. But one of the possible problems with it is at such a young age, you just become so familiar with it. You just keep saying the same things and suddenly it just doesn't have any more impact on your life. And then when you grow up and Christ really wants to pour life into you in some new way, you don't get it. You don't see it. Oh, well, yeah, you see him, but yet you don't really see him. It's kind of like getting uh, immunization. 
you get a little bit of the disease enough so that you never really get the real thing. And you've known people like that. You may have been a person like that. I was a person like that. I just knew enough to say I didn't really need any more. And what I really didn't know is I really didn't know Christ. I thought I did, but I didn't. The third thing, and probably the most poignant part of this for us, why would they take offense to Christ? One, pride. Two, familiarity. Three, truth. They took offense to Christ because he said he was the truth. He stands up in the synagogue and he says, he makes a truth claim. He says, I am mighty God. I am everlasting father. No one comes to the father except through me. And if that's true, and you believe it, then you have to reorient your whole life around that truth. And many people don't want to do that. And so what they say is that there can't be a truth. That's probably that statement that there is a truth. Christ is the truth. Probably in our culture is one of the most divisive statements you can say that he stands against the backdrop of everything else that's being said. And he says, I'm separate than everything else. I am the way, the truth and the life. I'm unique. And people are taking offense at that. Let me give you two illustrations, although you might have many for yourself. Bill Clinton, in a speech at Georgetown University following the 9-11 disaster, he's addressing the students there. And this is what he says. This battle of the terrorists fundamentally is about what you think about the nature of truth. They, the terrorists, believe that because they have the truth, you either share their truths or you don't. And if you don't agree with them, you're a legitimate target. You, speaking to the audience now are at a university which basically believes that no one ever has the whole truth, ever, because you're human. It's part of being human. It's part of the limitations imposed on us by God. We are incapable of ever having the whole truth because we don't believe you can have the whole truth. We think everybody counts and life is a journey. Now, as a human, I am limited to know what the truth is. But I can point to somebody who says he is the truth. And that's what the rub is. Jesus Christ stands up as a human against all humanity and says, I'm the different one. I'm the unique one. I'm the truth. There isn't anybody else like me on stage. And we live in a culture that doesn't want to buy into that. And they say, well, there isn't a truth. And that itself is a truth claim. Oprah, where a lot of people get their theology, unfortunately. I mentioned this one other time 
But I didn't mention this particular quote. Oprah is talking about the millions of diverse ways of being human. I would say there's only one way to be human, and that's like Christ. The closer you are to Christ, the closer you know what it means to really be human. And she says there's millions of of diverse ways of being human. There couldn't possibly be only one way to God. And then this brave lady pipes up out of the audience and says, well, what about Jesus? And again, if you could see the video clip, just tumult now. As soon as Jesus gets interjected, everybody understands that he's separating himself from everybody else. And Oprah says, well, what about Jesus? And the lady says, well, he's the only way. If you don't believe that, then you've bought into a lie. And here's what's very interesting. They kind of pan back to the to the to Oprah and the panel. But you hear from another voice, sort of an under comment in the crowd says this. Well, if you believe that, that makes you right and everyone else wrong. And that's not Christian. You hear that? It's not Christ-like to say you have the truth. Who said He's the truth? Christ is the truth. He's saying it. I'm not saying I'm the truth. I'm pointing to one truth, one reality, and that person is Christ. And so here He is with His disciples, and He's saying, Disciples, don't get distracted. All kinds of people are going to come in and say, well, he's one of many truths or he's not the truth. I'm the truth. All kinds of things. Don't get distracted by the waving of arms. Keep your eyes focused on me. It could be a friend. It could be a former president. It could be Oprah. It could be many different people who try to wave distracting flags. And he's saying, I want you to have your focus on me and me alone. I think one thing that we have to be careful about when we speak about the truth, this is something that I have to be careful about, and I've noticed it in different Christian circles, I wish people were a little bit more careful themselves. They believe in the truth of Christ. That's fine. But then they believe it's something that they possess or own And they hold it like a a sword that's too heavy for a young child. And because they can't really control it, they're swinging it around and really cutting people in half. The truth that Jesus Christ is talking about doesn't turn you into a terrorist. It doesn't turn you into a tyrant. He says what it turns you into. You know what he says? If you have this truth, this is what you're going to look like. And the more truth you have, the more you're going to look like this. It's the whole theme of Mark, Mark 10:45, to be a servant. Not some tyrant that's holding on to the truth and just whacking people with it. It's saying the closer you are to Christ, the more truth you have the greater servant you're going to be. 
to the degree that you begin to lay your life down for enemies, not kill them. That's a problem for us in Christian history. Many people have decided to pick up the sword instead of pick up the towel. That might be a problem for some of us here. The greater truth that we have, the greater servant we become. Well, finally, notice that Jesus marvels at their reaction. There's many other ways, there are many other reasons that they might have discounted Christ or taken offense. We've mentioned three, and Jesus then looks back at them and marvels. J.C. Ryle, an old British preacher, lived about a hundred years ago, says this. Why is this unbelief so amazing to Christ? See what's happening? They're amazed at him, and he turns the mirror back out and says, well, hey, I'm amazed at you. Why would Christ be amazed at them? And this is what J.C. Ryle says. Unbelief is a spiritual disease peculiar to Adam's children. It is a habit of soul entirely confined to man. Unbelief is a habit that's entirely confined to living man. If the Bible is true, angels believe in Jesus Christ. Demons believe in Jesus Christ. People who have believed in Christ and are dead believe in Jesus Christ. People who don't believe in Christ and are dead believe in Jesus Christ. The creation itself believes in Jesus Christ. Only living man has the capacity to deny Jesus Christ. And he looks at them and he's stunned. Here I am. I'm right in front of you. I'm unpacking the wisdom of the Old Testament. I'm the door that swings open to the new world. I'm doing all these mighty works. And yet you still have the capacity to say no. And he is stunned at them. You know, I think that many of us have given, been given every advantage to see Christ, to hear Christ, to know from creation or many other place Christ, and yet we still say no. I, I'm asking you to consider what's hindering you from believing in Christ. You have to answer the question, who is he? Now, if you're a believer here, we're at the end of the field trip. And now we're sending you on your way. I'm intentionally sending you, some of you, I don't know who, into storms that are by design of the Savior. Christ is now calling us to go into the world. 
And so we're at the end of the field trip. And here we are in our calendar, probably the two weeks that most people are most open to discussing things of Christ. And now I'm personally looking at you and I'm sending you out into the world. Each of you knows somebody that you can have a personal encounter with. And step in the way and as a servant, offer up the life-giving words of Christ. Some of you are going to come back beaten and bruised. Some of you are going to come back rejoicing. It might be as simple as inviting them to come to church on Easter Sunday. It might be as simple as saying, would you just like to come and share a meal with me at lunch or at my house? This is the call for every disciple. It's not the call for the pastor alone. It's not the call for just the great evangelist. It's the call for everybody now to step out and begin to encounter the culture with Christ. This isn't the... This is the first time he lets the disciples go out. It's not the last. The last time he let the disciples go out, they shared a meal together. They come to the Passover dinner. And he's going to send them out into terrible, terrible conditions. As far as we know, all of the disciples, except for maybe one, were martyred. Spear thrust. Burned, beheaded, crucified. Now, I seriously doubt that's going to happen to any of you all. But you're going to run into some very difficult storms. And he's inviting you, come to the table. Let's eat together one more time. Let's come together and let's leave together. Let's be encouraged. Let's keep our eyes focused on Christ. That's why we've set ourselves up just this way today. I don't want anything to get in the way of you seeing Christ. That's what's going to sustain you. And so he says to his disciples, this is my body. I'm giving it to you. When you go out, you remember me. You keep your eyes on me. You remember what I've done. And you go and do likewise. And I've poured out my blood. It's a new covenant. It's a new commitment I'm making. You. You go pour out yourselves to others. When you come, I want you to think about two things. One, obviously what Christ has done for you. The second thing I want you to have on your mind is the person that God's laying on your heart to share this good news with. And just let this be the beginning of you praying that God would open a door for a conversation between you and that person. I'm going to ask the elders to come up and help. I'm going to offer a prayer. And then when you're ready, you come forward and take. Let me pray for us. Lord, you have done something that's beyond our imagination. You are the doorway that leads to a new life. So I pray for those who are here are going to sit quietly as they observe this feast. I pray that they would ask the question, who is Jesus?
For those of us who are disciples, we are being called to be a servant. To be torn open, to spill out our blood, to serve to the very end for the purposes of the kingdom being spread. And I pray, Lord, that we would go in faith with our eyes on you. Lord, may this meal be a nourishment for our souls. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.